Yeah, so I think it's something like 25 or 30% of all workers have a non-compete of some form. Like it's really, really high. And you'd be surprised. So lawyers, our ethics rules don't allow this. We, we, we can't have non-competes against each other. It's kind of interesting. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist and podcast host. Sorry for my voice a little under the weather, getting over a cold. This week on the show, we're going to dive into current events that are affecting our lives as healthcare workers, as pre-medical students applying to medical schools, those of us that work in the medical school admissions process and like to engage in mentoring of pre-medical students and medical students. We're going to talk later with Michael Johnson of Michael Johnson Legal. He's going to give us some updates regarding the new information from the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, where they propose a new rule to ban non-compete clauses, which hurt workers and harm competition. This is from earlier in the month of January of 2023. Michael Johnson is a lawyer. He specializes in physician contracts, and he's going to give us some updates on what this new proposed rule change may mean, if it means anything at all, and when we could expect some changes of results. Other things in the news that you may have seen, it is a mad dash to leave the U.S. News and World Reports In other news, you've probably heard that medical schools everywhere are dropping the U.S. News & World Report ranking system like a bad habit. Um, I think over 12 schools so far have refused or or, uh, declined to provide updated information to the U.S. News & World Report ranking system. The schools that have dropped so far include Harvard, Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, Stanford, University of Washington, uh, Mount Sinai, Washington University, Cornell, and uh, University of Chicago. Johns Hopkins as well has since dropped from the U.S. News World Report ranking. What does that mean? I think personally, you know, a lot of this has to deal with elitism in medicine. And I think it's fantastic that schools are starting to step back and protest and not be a part of this ranking structure because the U.S. News World Report ranking system doesn't really, um, isn't really based on the facts and the data of what it takes to produce a good physician. What is the ranking system based on? This is from an article on Stat News. It was actually written by Dr. Holly Humphrey. She was a former dean at the University of Chicago Prescott School of Medicine. And this article was written back in November of 2022, entitled Dean's Dump That U.S. News World Report Best Medical School Survey. So she's advocating for leaving this, uh, this survey. She mentions how law schools we're kind of the first to leave the U.S. News & World Report ranking system. And she talks about how significant it would be for medical schools to follow this pathway. Again, because this ranking system is more of a money grab. It's a cash grab. And it serves to, you know, show who is the quote-unquote best medical school. And it pits um, these poor undergrad students that are trying to get into medical school, pits them against each other, fighting to get into these elite medical schools. And when it comes to residency programs on the other side, you know, are they selecting based upon who got to go to these elite medical schools? If you take a look into what it actually means to be top of the list in the U.S. News and World Report, the ranking structure actually lacks utility and value, according to this article, does a grave disservice to medical school applicants and reinforces bias in other practices. The U.S. News and World Report ranking system relies on a couple of data points. It looks at federal research dollars which gives a disproportionate preference to larger schools. 
I can always look at this in comparison to the lens of my beloved Howard University or uh, Morehouse or Meharry, these HBCU medical schools, which would never, you know, reach the top of the U.S. News World Report ranking, as you'll see, because of the things that the metrics that are listed. So federal research dollars, right? If you're a big name school with a huge endowment, with a huge undergrad and huge research arm, then you're going to get a lot more points in the U.S. News World Report ranking system. At no point does this consider what benefit is actually trickling down to the medical students or how the flow of research dollars into this institution supports their experiences or medical education. Another metric they look at is reputation. This is assessed by a survey of medical school deans, department chairs, residency program directors who could not possibly possess the necessary knowledge and judgment regarding quality of education at other medical schools in the country. So this just goes to the name brand schools, of course. Another metric you look at is a ratio of full-time students to faculty, regardless of that faculty's involvement in student education. So again, you have a large prestigious institution with a huge research endowment. You're going to have a lot more faculty members that are probably just dedicated to research and may not even interact with medical students. So how is this really contributing to medical school education? They look at the students' median scores in the medical college admissions test and their undergraduate grade point average. These quantitative measures that are strongly influenced by economics and societal factors, so family wealth, opportunities to uh, maintain uh, education and, and be educated at some of the best of institutions, right? Then there's bias and discrimination within the educational environment and educational system itself. So we know there's problems with the MCAT and uh, how it self-selects for people from different socioeconomic statuses and other factors but this is a huge component of the U.S. News and World Report ranking system. Finally, there is the acceptance rate. So the proportion of students that offered that are offered an admission compared to the number of students who apply. So this incentivizes schools to um, encourage applications and take those application fees from those students they have no intention of seriously considering for admission. So who wins with the U.S. News & World Report ranking system? It ultimately ends up being the U.S. News & World Report ranking system. They, they make tons and tons and piles and piles of money off of this ranking system. Just like all those surveys you see in your hometown of a top doctor and, and this and that, oftentimes those are like paid surveys. So you just pay to enter and then you'd vote for yourself or have your office nominate you and then you can have your picture in a magazine. So... I, for one, am excited to see this trend continue of these medical schools leaving the U.S. News and World Report ranking system. I think it is uh, probably a bit performative at this point. You know, the uh, OGs or originators or Harvard, they didn't have much to lose as they left the U.S. News and World Report ranking system. And then other schools, you know, once the, the top dog kind of leaves, well, we're going to follow suit because we don't um, have any, you know, we, you know, what, who are we being compared with now that, uh, folks are starting to leave. It's in vogue. It's trendy. So excited to see where this goes. And hopefully it's kind of provides a little bit more equity within this process of medical students that are applying for medical school. And how do you pick which medical school you go to? We should definitely be looking at other factors. Um, you know, how do you interface with the community? Where do your graduates end up practicing? Is there a uh, goal towards teaching health equity and social determinants of health and, and other issues that have a significant impact on healthcare disparities and the health gaps and, and other issues, social issues that we have in this country. So that is something that is going on. We'll continue to watch. 
Now we're going to jump into an interview that I did with Michael Johnson of Michael Johnson Legal. And we're going to continue this conversation talking about the FTC and the new proposed rule change. Man, so that that was my you know last couple of months of craziness in fellowship. We talked about your last couple of months being super busy, um, helping a lot of folks out. But we do want, and I saw on your Instagram, which remind me is it's position or what, what's your Instagram? At Physician Contracts. At Physician Contracts. Follow uh, Michael because he does a lot of little snippets of current events. And one of the things we want to talk about is that you may have seen online this. FTC and Biden, those are the headlines. Can you explain what uh, FTC is and then what the significance is of this, of what's going on? Yeah, so the FTC, FTC stands for the Federal Trade Commission. And uh, January 5th, they issued a preliminary rule that they would make all non-competes for all employees across the country invalid. Kind of a big headline, right? Like that's that that would have a huge yeah, impact. Sounds, sounds good. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, but a couple things. Uh, the FTC, it's questionable whether they, as an administrative body, have been assigned by Congress to make a rule that is that sweeping, that expansive. There's a constitutional issue about the extent of their power that. Uh, was actually mentioned by one of the FTC commissioners, one of the folks that like writes about the rules, whether it should be approved or denied, uh, that sort of thing, uh, wrote about it. A number of, of folks are, are highlighting this issue that uh, the rule, the proposed rule might go too far and um, might be struck down on constitutional grounds. Uh, the separation of powers and what powers Congress can delineate to administrative bodies like like the FTC. We'll see where that goes. So another issue, too, it's a preliminary rule, so it's not final. There's a, a comment period, and then there'll probably be another delay. I suspect the FTC will pass some sort of rule, but I question whether it's going to be as clean, like, all employees across the board, as it's currently written, or whether there'll be either uh, income carve-outs or industry-specific mm-hmm. carve-outs. And either one of those are going to knock out physicians, let's be real. <laughs> like, if, um, if you're looking at who is more deserving of a just a complete ban, a complete waiver, um, the sandwich maker and the minimum wage security security guard that uh, had non-competes are really at the core of this rule. The reason that the FTC wants to make such a sweeping rule is because folks like Jimmy John's wanted to put non-competes on their sandwich makers. Well, wait, wait a minute. So, so because Michael, who else has? I mean, I'm very I can't think of the word right now. Just self-centered, I guess. Who besides physicians have? not competes routinely. Yeah, so I think it's something like 25 or 30% of all workers have a non-compete of some form. No like way. it's really really high and you'd be surprised. So lawyers our ethics rules don't allow this. We 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 can't have non-competes against each other. It's kind of interesting. Of course. Uh, doesn't really affect yeah. us that much like it makes it easier to go start a small law practice. Thank goodness for me, right? But uh <laughs> it <laughs> Workers across the country are subject to these things, 
and they get fearful and they might stay in a job that they don't want or they don't like anymore or changes on them. The same issues that physicians face, um, Jimmy John's sandwich makers were facing. Uh, and then there's a, really? there's a case of like a minimum wage or close to minimum wage security guard that was also subject to a non-compete. Uh, some of these are just really quite punitive. So those are the folks that the FTC. So, so, yeah. So, so Jimmy John says you can't go work at Subway. They're, that's what they're trying to do. <laughs> that's what they're trying to do. It's so <laughs> nonsensical that uh, it really just shock, shocks the conscience that uh, someone would think that that's enforceable. And look, like we, I think we talked about it before. A non-compete doesn't have to be 100% enforceable to be effective. Like, this is one of the things that people get wrong all the time. They say, well, yeah, I mean, a court would invalidate that. Like, that's not enforceable, blah, blah, blah. Like, they could go win the lawsuit. You know how hard it is to go win a lawsuit? You know, just personally frustrating it is to be involved in one and to hire lawyers. And look, the... Sandwich maker at Jimmy John's, like, I'd love to take that case pro bono. That would be a blast, right? Uh, surely he, they got some help uh, from the legal community, uh, I would hope. But uh, physicians don't always have that luxury, so it becomes expensive. And then even if it's a coin flip, then usually there's an attorney's fees clause where you have to pay the practice's attorney's fees if you lose. And then sometimes you're in, like, a weird limbo land because you can't really start your next job until this lawsuit is settled. And sometimes lawsuits might take longer than anticipated. Big surprise, right? So it can be incredibly frustrating. So that's why the FTC really wants to um, get rid of non-competes is because of that scenario. But there's already been some pushback. Uh, I think it was like financial services and some of the like uh, realtors associations already started pushing back and saying like, hey, look, our model is going to fall apart a bit if this happens. Uh, and I just don't, I don't think that there's going to be some mass like hysterics in the physician contracting world over this issue. Uh, there's states that physician contracts are not enforceable. California uh, is one of them. There's other ways to restrict movement of physicians besides non-competes. And we can talk about those a little bit. But uh, invalidating non-competes will certainly be helpful for physicians. But I don't think it's going to upend the whole industry in a damaging way like uh, a couple of the mm -hmm. commenters have have discussed that is best so we need to wait and see how this uh pans out yeah i i think that nothing's going to happen super quick um, i suspect that the ftc will pass something and then there'll probably be some period where there where there's some legal limbo um or it could be wrong i don't i don't know it's hard to say for sure but anybody evaluating contracts right now should know that the ftc has not unilaterally invalidated all non-competes uh, Biden administration, I think it's been a couple of years ago now, he started talking about this quite a, quite a while ago and actually directed the FTC to look at this issue. But, you know, Biden with okay. uh, some federal proclamations, I guess, spoke negatively about non-competes non in the workforce. Uh, those proclamations also did not invalidate non-competes. They're still very much alive and enforceable in states that allow them 
um, and you should pay attention. But also, it's often not the most restrictive piece of your exit strategy. And this is why evaluating your exit strategy is so important. Um, sometimes it's a mix of the malpractice tail clause and the non-solicit clause. The non-solicit speaks to protecting your the employer's relationships with patients, even though they're quote-unquote your patients. You can't really market towards them. You can't encourage them to leave. Uh, there's usually meaningful restrictions on what you can do with your patients once you leave a practice. But that can often be more restrictive than a two-year, 15-mile non-compete, uh, the patient's piece. Hmm. Sometimes it also applies to coworkers. Sometimes it also applies to referral sources. Imagine if you're in certain types of practice that are really reliant upon referrals. And if you can't solicit your prior referral sources, the ones that you had while you were working in that practice, that can be far more damaging than a non-compete. So I would also encourage physicians if the non-compete ban actually comes through. Uh, that's not the end of physician contracts. There are still very, very important and powerful restrictive covenants and other barriers to exit that physicians should be well aware of. So, Michael, how far would they take things like a non-solicit? So I'm an orthopedic surgeon that left a big box hospital. I have a clinic. I want hand surgery referrals from the ER or from family practice docs. I cannot email those docs to say, hey, I have a new practice and send patients? Like, Where do they draw the line on some of those um, non-solicits? That's really challenging to answer uh, because non-solicits are written in all kinds of different ways. It's one of the most frustrating areas for me because it's so hard to very clearly say to a physician, if you do X, you're safe. If you do Y, you're in trouble. There's almost always some sort of gray area So if any part of your exit strategy includes needing to reach out directly to referral sources, uh, you really don't want to do that alone. You need a lawyer, frankly, probably needs to be in your city, ready to help defend you if you end up in some sort of war of words or some sort of legal claim scenario to evaluate what what the pros and cons are of your proposed uh, actions. Many non-solicits will be a little bit vague on referral sources. I see in dermatology, mm-hmm. a lot are very clear about referral sources. Like that's probably the most valuable re- like uh, thing that you would take away. Patients are great, but if you are able to directly market the referral source that you developed during the practice, then you know you can probably leave and do just fine. I see a lot of details in my dermatology, uh, particularly cosmetics about referral sources. So I'm going to even go as far as to like list out in the schedule all of their referral sources and make it clear that these are protected. These are excluded from referral wow. source non-solicits. It's a very like roundabout answer to your question, Stephen, but it kind of highlights this idea that uh, there, there can be tons of gray area and it's not a super like comfortable, fun area to be in. But Look, if you work directly for a hospital in your ortho, your ortho hand surgeon example, you work directly for the hospital and you got all your all of your referrals internally from the hospital or from all of the other docs that their practices were bought out from the hospital 
and you want to want to you want to start your own private practice where where are you going to get referrals if there if the hospital hires somebody else that kind of oh, does wow. the same thing or if the others in that group that are directly employed by the practice are able to absorb your patients and absorb the additional referrals then that could be the most restrictive piece of your exit strategy the huh. uh, macro level you probably didn't think we were going this direction, Steve, but the macro level yeah, kind yeah. of like, um, I guess, consolidation in medicine makes uh, non-solicits and non-solicitor referral sources, coworkers, patients far more challenging. Often non-solicit of coworkers it can be the biggest barrier to like leaving and starting in a private practice. You might want not want to start it by yourself. You might want to start it with, the doc that you worked with at the hospital that you really, really liked, you love working together, or a couple of you, and you want to leave and start your own practice. Well, if you guys are planning uh, planning all this together, at the same time you're kind of you're kind of soliciting each other all at the same time, right? Wow. So it can get really no challenging. Way. So yeah, yeah. Um, that, that that when you put it that way, like, because you know we don't nobody ever talks about any of this you know, when you're going through medical training. And I see this happen because I, I know a couple of folks that really have large social media followings and everything's great. They're posting on social media. They're at this practice. And all of a sudden there's like radio silence. They don't post about their practice anymore, but they also don't post where they're going to. It's like a vague cryptic message about stay tuned. And I'm like, uh Oh, there's like some stuff going on. And so I don't know if it goes that far as, is that the gray area where maybe you can't post about what you're doing next without, you know, some kind of legal action. It gets pretty, uh, yeah, like you said, it's a gray area, I guess. Yeah. I'm involved in quite a few discussions like that with the recently growing Instagram presence, uh, largely thankful (laughs) to my time with you on the black doctors podcast. Really, really a, a shot in the arm for my IG presence. But I do end up talking with a lot more docs that have a, um, like a social media following, something like that. So it becomes more challenging. Like, what do you say publicly about your employer and your exit and where you're going next? And it's all something that uh, someone else can print out and attach to a lawsuit if you do it wrong. Like, it's all public. It's not like... You had, wow, yeah, you know, uh, right. uh, you ran into someone on the corner, you know, at the candy store, at the coffee shop, and you said, "Hey, I'm going over here. Let's chat about it in a couple weeks." Like, I don't know, are people going to find out about that? Maybe, maybe not. But like, if you post a video or a reel about it that gets, you know, a million views, uh, it's kind of hard to hide, that, wow. right? So, <laughs> yeah, it's challenging. Wow, that that is a, a lot to to think about. And and I had a a guest on about a year ago or more, and their whole thing was kind of taking your own marketing as a physician because you'll see, and it was very eye opening to me. You'll see so many folks. I'm with a big box healthcare organization, and you're on their website, so you you Google their name. They're going to come up under that hospital's website. They have their reviews through that hospital. So obviously, if you leave that, then you've lost your reviews, you've lost your your search engine optimization. It's all like connected to that one institution, um, as opposed to building your own, getting your own website, um, using your your Google uh, business page, and and 
there's just different ways, I guess, to separate things out and, and protect yourself. Yeah, it's really important with that, particularly in practices where that value uh, can really drive your real ability to leave the job. Like if you're able to market yourself uh, in, a, in a public way, um, having control over that can be very powerful for your exit strategy. One, it's just nice. Like I really enjoy now with much smaller than yours and most, but a growing presence, just really fun. So I would want to control it um, if I was in your position anyways. But uh, yeah. understanding what you can do with it can be can be very powerful. I, I like the idea of um, really clarifying that in the outside activities clause, sometimes the intellectual property clause, or like some moonlighting slash exclusive dealings type clause, something like that, that speaks to mm -hmm. what you can do outside of practicing medicine, that like kind of quasi-medicine space, the consulting space. What most employers are concerned about is, are you taking money from a type of company that needs to be reported, like Big Pharma, okay. right? That's one of their main concerns, but often they just uh, kind of want to need to know. I, I encourage physicians to err on the side of uh, disclosure, and particularly if you're looking at a new job, okay. try to disclose, or not try, do disclose that uh, and get clearance for that on the front end. But yeah, I've also worked with folks that like having access to before and after photos can be very powerful. Like imagine if you're really? a plastic surgeon and you really can't, or it's questionable in your contract, what you can do with all of your work product, whether you can really take it away or not, or how that works. Um, that can be so they'll say you cannot use your own before and after photos. Yeah. You just got to clarify it on the front end. Like I, I don't like huh. gray area in that space. If it's something that's really powerful, important for your exit strategy, then let's make it crystal clear before you sign the contract. Uh, let's not guess about it. Well, good, good advice as always, Michael, you're, we appreciate you being a friend of the show. Obviously every time you're on, you, you give so much value, even more value on social media reading constantly stay up to date but we'll definitely have you back on a couple times during the year and you can come in and and keep us abreast of all these issues that are so important and, and we'll definitely um if you would wouldn't mind keeping us kind of on track because a lot of folks are on different cycles and different times of the year the uh implications of the job hunt or things you're looking at in residency contracts or or whatnot uh, we'd love to have you back um to because you just add so much value um, to our experience as as healthcare workers. Thank you so much. That's really kind. And congratulations to you. Like, let's take a moment and and take a bow. <laughs> like, it's such a long process. It's so challenging. I know you had uh, your time in the Navy before going back to fellowship, but then doing it again. You're you're looking at a move um, to Florida. You said, and it's a really cool moment. So I hope uh, I hope you've enjoyed this uh this moment of the last handful of weeks and just kind of the excitement of of uh having made a decision and, and moving forward congrats way to go absolutely before we leave would you mind sharing uh where folks can get a hold of you um your socials your because you do kind of a blog and some other information that you provide can you give us that uh information absolutely so i'm most active on instagram at physician contracts super obvious right uh, not hiding the ball at all, at Physician Contracts. Uh, my goal 
Um, I think I missed like two days this year. My goal is to post something every day, post a reel or a blog. I also have a couple kids, so you'll see them like sleeping in the background sometimes. Sometimes I got to squeeze it in when I can. But the what you'll <laughs> see on some of those is um, just me talking about uh, whatever I'm dealing with that day. Often the issue that I'm discussing about physician contracts is something that I've dealt with in the last handful of days, couple of weeks. Um, but I try to uh, open source as much information as I possibly can for physicians to help them understand how to contract, how these affect their lives. So the IG at Physician Contracts, check out my website. Still under construction, Stephen. Physiciancontracts.com. Michael. (laughs) I've been too busy. This is terrible. I know, right? (laughs) When, so for folks that have heard, um, like if you go back to the, the ta- I think we taped it like in May or June, it probably dropped in July or something. I talked about how uh, yeah. I would tell everybody about physiciancontracts.com. So I'd like get on making the website and getting it up to up to speed. That's how busy I've been, Stephen. I haven't even done it yet. So, But my blogs are there. You can go see my blogs. Um, okay. I have several uh, like cornerstone blogs that you can use as a starting point. And I really want to grow that, um, just to open source your information as much as possible. But yeah, those are the best ways. If you want to reach out to me, uh, you can DM me or contact me through my website. Go to adphysician.com, at, at, sorry, physiciancontracts.com uh, and contact me there. I'd love to be helpful. Oh, last thing, Stephen, if you have a residency, a fellowship program, and you have some open space on your didactics, I'm fun to chat with. I'll put the, put together a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> and I'll zoom in. Uh, super easy for me. And I've got some really good responses from that. Um, try to do maybe once every week or two weeks. So uh, we'll do our best to get something scheduled if you're interested. Fantastic. I think you mentioned you're looking for another partner potentially. Yeah. So I'd love to grow some more. Uh, it's been so much fun bringing on Esther Uh, and working with um, another physician contract lawyer and being able to bounce ideas off together. Um, I feel like we're really a great team and we're set up nicely to, to grow, to add someone else to our practice. It'd be great if the, the lawyer that we added knew a little bit about the physician world, you don't have to have a ton of experience in any particular area, but if you're interested in physicians and maybe have some background in physician experience, that can be very helpful to us. Uh, I would love to work with someone who's interested in being uh, remote. Uh, we're remote and somewhat asynchronous. You can kind of set your own hours. Uh, we can work on a full-time or a part-time scenario. But if you're passionate about helping physicians and uh, your lawyer, you're licensed, uh, then I would love to chat with you about it. Contact me through my website. Um, that would be really, really special. Fantastic. Well, Michael, thank you again for coming on and sharing so much super valuable information for you listening. Thank you so much for listening to the Black Doctors podcast. Um, Steven, your host, tune in next week for another fantastic episode. We're here because representation matters.